the post money plan. Dropping knowledge. Because without it, you ain't fresh. Hey, what's up, everybody? This upload is coming to you on July the 3rd, 2017. Uh, I just wanted to wish you happy early 4th of July. My name is Stephen Ngao, and I'm today's host for the Post Money Plan podcast. We believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so our purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought on topics within personal finance, economics, and investing. Don't forget, you can find us at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, sports, a little bit of uh, economics behind sports, specifically in basketball, the National Basketball Association. As I said before, I'm Stephen Ngao, and here's my co-host, Abel Sayed. Hey, Stephen. How's it going, man? Excited to talk about one of our favorite things, the NBA. Oh, yeah. It's about that time, isn't it? Full swing in the offseason. All right. So, teams making moves. Yeah, know. teams making moves, back and forth headlines, potential players, Dangling as trade bait, uh, you know. For the past those. couple of weeks have been kind of uh, full of that. Yeah, it seems like we got some feverish uh, GMs, some general managers who are uh, bitter about some exit meetings uh, being, <laughs> <laughs> being not attended to. Yeah, trying to trade, you know, their 21-year-old superstar prospect for uh, petty reasons. Yeah, that's pr- that's pretty much all I've been going through and trying to understand myself. But yeah, we, and we can get into that. Yeah, for sure. So I've been kind of, I have a personal thing with the NBA. I've been trying to find a way to get more traction on Twitter. I just opened up a new Snapchat account and I have a Twitter account for the last couple of months. And a lot of the time I just find myself replying back to people's tweets, you know, just following what different sports stars like Steph Curry or Kevin Durant are saying, or even Phil Jackson, what they say on Twitter. And, you know, Twitter is kind of in a, this desperate situation I just want to bring up Twitter because they have this exclusive deal with the NBA and the NFL. But with the NBA, they made this deal where they're having two pregame shows live. So it's like live streaming is a big thing because they want to gain user base. Snapchat made a similar deal as well. I just thought it was interesting how, you know, the NBA, all 30 teams have made about $5.3 billion in revenue total. And there's so much money. It's very lucrative. And there's so much money on the table. Twitter did a deal with the NBA to have everything live streamed except the actual games itself, which I feel like is like, uh, you know, it's kind of like giving us, you know, the end user the short end of the stick because countless times I'm always going to different live streams that are not on cable TV. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like if companies like Twitter or Snapchat are sincere about increasing their user base, then perhaps they should find a way to make that live content of games accessible, but that again, that could potentially marginalize the revenue stream for the NBA itself. Right, because the deal deal that, so the ESPN and TNT deal they made with the NBA is $24 billion for the next nine years up until like 2025. Really? I mean, that kind of money, yeah, that's just the kind of money that is warranted for these streaming rights. So, I mean, it's not crazy to think that they're not, NBA's not going to allow Twitter and maybe other social media or streaming sites that show actual game footage. Or live game footage because it's just they've locked that up with with ESPN and TNT. Yeah, I mean the NBA ever since the whole globalization expansion with Michael Jordan in the '90s in general, it's been such a globalized sport. Okay, so Wimbledon, which is a tennis tournament, Wimbledon was, to my knowledge, the largest thing that Twitter had broadcasted live. So you compare a sport like tennis to basketball. I mean, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> I just kind of wish viewership is probably a little different. Yeah. 
But, I mean, at the same time, I think that with the Internet becoming more, it's augmenting this, quote-unquote, sharing economy. I think if we continue to push the envelope, we can find ways to have direct access and exclusive access to players, you know, behind the scenes, opportunities are coming up. And for me, like, I think, and I think the, the league knows this and the owners know this, the driving force of the popularity of the NBA are the players. More, I think, I think more so than any other sport. Because it's, it's a five-on-five contest where you can see the players clearly on the court. You can see their reactions, their mannerisms, what they say sometimes. And then I think that's why the social media part of it is so fascinating because I think they can then get a deal with Snapchat so they can Snapchat all these players in their natural environment on the court, off the court, and kind of control that access. And I think more exposure for the players is better for the league. So I think it makes complete sense for them to try to take advantage of all these social media avenues to get more exposure for their players and internationally i mean remember how big like kobe is in china and how much he did for the nba in china yeah he's still big dude (laughs) every time he goes there it's like thousands of people swarm him i've never seen those videos yeah yeah uh speaking of which i was reminded clay thompson from the warriors he's recently been he recently trolled the internet in a bad way (laughs) he was doing um, a basketball training camp in china i think and he was showing these kids how to dunk and he he couldn't make the dunk, so it was it was, it was pretty funny because he just ended up falling on himself, and yeah, I saw yeah that. <laughs> it went viral in the wrong way. But I think yeah, just to go back to circle back, Abe, you, you do bring up a good point. Just the players that really make the league, you, you see, you get a better impression of them compared to other sports like football. Yep. I mean, there's like how many guys on on one team when it comes to NFL. So the owners kind of have more leverage because they know that each guy is more expendable. Contracts are less guaranteed versus in basketball. And you have like the superstars, you got the super duper stars, as Tony Parker says, and those guys are the face of the franchise. And I think that companies like Snapchat do have a prime opportunity. Um, Snapchat is this messaging service application where they send out messages with multimedia text messages. It could be either photo or video, but it's all dispensable. So the moment you see it, you get a Snapchat from someone that's snapping at you that you can only see it once. So Snapchat is working on what they call specialized filters. So, I mean, geo filters are a big thing of their business. So, for example, if you're in Cleveland and you're a big fan of the Cavaliers, say you're at a game and you're, you want to snap a moment. So you take like a 10-second video and you can add some filters to it. Because of what they call geo filters, you can actually curate your snap to show specific filters. You can curate your snap to show filters specifically designed to where your location is or what event is going on. And so... The way Snapchat makes money is it negotiates those deals, and it's really based on it's a location-based service. I brought up the Cavaliers, but one of the bigger deals that they did do was with McDonald's. And so, whenever you had McDonald's, you can use uh, McDonald's geo filters with your snaps. And McDonald's paid a big price for that. They're actually the big company to sign them on, and that was just based on location. So, if you're in a certain restaurant, say it's I don't know a thousand square feet, then you know they'll budget it out. If you're Snapchat, you'd be like, our geo filters are for this company. It could be, I don't know, $10 a square foot. And you do the math on that. I mean, I think the minimum they have is $5 a square foot. But when you think about organizations like NBA, where it makes, you know, billions of dollars, like I think the Knicks and the Lakers are like the top two teams in terms of operating income alone, which is like hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I think they can, I think they have a good chance to, to leverage partnerships with up-and-coming tech companies like Snapchat who are looking to have user growth and, and content creation. Well, actually, I do want to say, doesn't Snapchat also sell the ad spaces on their platform and then yeah. like split that with the NBA? Yeah, so they have like a couple of things. They have what they call Discover, 
and they have what uh, they call live stories. So live stories, you can kind of think of it like in Facebook when you make when you have your own personal feed. You add content, you post content, and people can follow your stories. And each story resets every 24 hours. So it's all about, you know, time limit is really key. So people like that sense of exclusivity. You know, you can check out someone's story before it disappears forever. And Discover is kind of like an overall feed where it's it's curated based on, say, there's like sports talk or, or politics or environmental discussions. Uh, you know, whatever topic is, is being generated on the platform, you get to see stories curated towards that. So they're really trying to be like this media company that's focused on, think of like micro TV. I don't know if that's a good, right. a good way to phrase it. But instead of sitting for like 30 minute sitcoms or 45 minute shows, you just get little, you know, little bits, little clips, because snaps is only like 10, 12 seconds. So I think it's interesting what they're trying to do. And it makes perfect sense for the NBA to get into that, because, I mean, they can just bring the encore experience, I think, through that to the viewers, like the stuff you can't see really. Like, let's say there's a celebrity on the court side. You can snap that guy, right? Like yeah. Dave Chappelle or someone, get a comment from him and then send that out. And I mean, I think just all that content's out there that you can't get through just a TV viewing experience, like on TNT or ESPN, where you, I mean, you do get like the sideline interview sometimes. Yeah. You don't really get that feel of what's going on on the court. And I think that it makes perfect sense for the NBA to want to do that with Snapchat or other social media sites. So in basketball, there's this thing called two for one, where you basically, you take advantage of time on the clock, right? So say you got just under 48 seconds. So each shot clock is 24 seconds. The main objective of the two for one point conversion is you want to score as many points as you can with a little amount of possessions. You assume that the opposing team will milk down the clock and take 24 seconds. You want to leave the opposing team with the last possession, so they milk down the clock. But then you want to have two possessions. One possession where you milk down the 24-second clock, but then you also rush the very first possession, usually what it is. You also rush possession to get a couple of points on the board so that you end up with the last, last uh, shot. Yeah, the last Basically shot. just getting the last shot, yeah. Yeah. You want two possessions and the other team get one possession. Yeah. Last like, you know, 40 seconds of a, or 35 seconds. So you rush and shoot before it hits 24 seconds. So you actually get another possession. Yeah. And it, like imagine snaps curated just around, you know, two for one conversion. Because I think that's when you really get those basketball junkie fans, like people who really know the game. And, you know, if you listen to like Jeff Van Gundy or Mark Jackson, they always talk about the strategy within the strategy. That's kind of where people can get a different perspective of, of how basketball is played. Yeah. And like the problem, I've always wanted some service. I just gave you coaches, hear the coaches out on the court. Yeah. Or the huddles and here, because the whole, the part of the huddles that they show you on TV are like the cliche, like, let's go play hard, you know, go all out. <laughs> yeah. Yada, yada, yada. Like you don't hear any action on the strategy, but there's, you know, there's obvious reason for that. They don't want the strategy to be shown on TV and then the other team get intel that way. It's just a shame that the TV viewers can never get that kind of content because it just coaches want to be all secretive and surprising about their strategies. But yeah, yeah, that would be, I mean, that would be cool, I think. Yeah, well, I've I think, always wanted like an HBO, something like HBO, where they could provide a, a viewing service where you could actually hear the court unedited, <laughs> so you could hear the players interact, <laughs> like them curse at each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you're, yeah, you're starting to hear that more now than ever. I think just because like the the granularity and how mobile technology has become, you get to hear and see things. <laughs> like I remember when uh, the whole Kevin Garnett, Carmelo Anthony, when Honey Nut Cheerios, you know that, that was yeah. that was hilarious, dude. Yeah, that was bad. Straight up trolled them. KG is like a notoriously 
rude trash talker I've heard. But yeah, like Snapchat would be perfect for that kind of stuff too. Just it'll little maybe they can kind of edit it or not edit, it, but select which ones to choose to send through snaps, like player conversations and stuff. I think that could work too. Yeah, that'd be cool. I think a big part of it is just like the structure. You think about the NBA. The NBA, real technically, it is a monopoly. It's owned by 30 teams and a board of directors, if I'm not mistaken, which is led by the commissioner. Which the current mm-hmm. commissioner is Adam Silver. And so they have this thing called a CBA, a Collective Bargaining Agreement, where it's, it's an agreement, a contractual agreement between the employers, i.e. the franchises and the NBA, and the employees, i.e. the players. And uh, obviously the players bring in the, the money, they bring in the attention, but it's, it's the owners that keep the business the business. So with regards to like the NBA draft, yeah. do you think that's a fair way to bring new players into the league? Where like you get you get assigned a team, you don't have any choice of which team you go to. Man, it's because I've mean, wondered about that. So I think you yes, don't, there's not many there's not many careers. This is different. Like you said, the NBA is kind of a monopoly where they can kind of control these things anyway. And obviously, with the cap, it's not really a, the pre agency is not really a like a free marketplace because you can only assign or offer a salary up to a certain point for every player. So there's that as well, because I think like a player like LeBron James would probably make $75 million a year if there was no cap, because he's not worth the same as someone like Bradley Beal just got a mass contract. Right. LeBron right. James is, is much more valuable than Bradley Beal. And you could say Kevin Durant is much more valuable than some of these other players getting max contracts. If there was an actual true open market. And also, that question is, should there be a salary cap in the first place? And what do you think about the draft? Because there's actually some, I've noticed some chatter about whether the draft should be eliminated or whether they should do it differently. Because like in soccer, they don't have a draft. They just sign players when they're young teenagers yeah, and bring them like to their system. system. It's right. a farm system. So you can't, you can't really do that, especially if they go through college. It's funny. Like for me, you know, I've been fortunate to have an opportunity to go to college and earn a degree. So I know the amount of hard work it takes to obtain that, uh, especially if you if you come from a background where not a lot of folks in your family have that degree. But from what I've been reading about and, and seeing from all these recent NBA players, it's like they know they see the business, like they see the dollar signs from the moment they start playing ball, and they know that when they go to the NCAA. There's just been this popular trend of one and done. You know, they'll commit to one year, then they'll jump into the league because they know that actually Ben Simmons, I think he's a power forward for the Sixers. He plays for the Sixers. He was the number one overall pick last year. He did a documentary talking about how he's not really for going to college as a means to get to the NBA. He'd rather just go directly to the pros. I think that's because there was a recent mandate for players to spend at least one year in college before going into the pros. And they're trying to push it to two. I think when yep. you when you talk about the draft, it kind of helps the college teams more than the players. But then the players also need some sort of fundamental level of, of, of support. I can't think of a lot of players. I mean, I think of Kobe and Kevin Garnett. I mean, they went straight from high school to the NBA and they dominated. It's kind of like a yeah. hard thing to say because everybody. But a lot, also what happened though is a lot of players, I think, like there were a few exceptions like Kobe, KG, LeBron, but a lot of players who jumped straight to the NBA kind of they weren't at that maturity level and they weren't at that skill level and they just, they never panned out. Yeah. Um, it's just interesting being like, if you, you brought up coming straight out of high school, like let's say the teams can then assign a value to each player coming out of high school and sign them for a certain amount, how that would affect decision-making would become so much more difficult for teams. And I think that would definitely separate more out of the teams that do their, they make good sound decisions and versus the teams that are dysfunctional, right? 
like I think the draft helps some of these lousy teams with lousy front office personnel because there's a way to equilibrate. Because like you said, there's you can build through the draft, you can sign players based on your location, stuff like that. Right, right. So I think yeah, I think it would just be a completely different d- dynamic where you'd have certain teams that just separate themselves even further. Well, I think the draft is supposed to be this type of farm system approach, right? You you pick like look at Golden State. They have four All Star players, three of which were drafted, and that's that's a good situation because I think of it like uh, if you're a farmer and you, and you have sets of crops that you want to grow at an even rate. I feel like that's what you see when you look at teams like Golden State. You have these yeah. three players who came in around the same time. They're developing at the same time into their peak. But then you're going to have that one year or that one moment where, okay, contracts up for, like what you're saying about Brandon Beal versus LeBron James. That's really where you're going to see shifts in the paradigm. Like when collective bargaining agreements are updated or changed, players can go, can be paid above the cap or what have you. But I think that's also a risk factor. I mean, Dan Gilbert is the owner for the Cleveland Cavaliers. So his team, the total team payroll was like, Almost $130 million. Well, actually, let's go back to, because you you mentioned the Golden State, how they build their team, right? They build through the draft. Yeah. But they did it in a different, like, they actually, like, I think Clay Thompson was the seventh pick. Draymond was, like, the 35th pick. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't just number one picks. But what happened with, like, Dan Gilbert, and what I'm talking about, like, with dysfunctional owners getting lucky through the draft, <laughs> after LeBron left, he got three out of, like, four years with the number one pick. Yeah, Kyrie that's Irving. When he, that's when he took Kyrie. He took, I think, Tristan. Yeah, and the the one that didn't pan out was Anthony Bennett, but he got totally lucky three years, and LeBron came back because he stockpiled enough talent. Then he traded for Kevin Love and stuff right after LeBron came back. But right, well, no, yeah, the other number one pick was Andrew Wiggins. So it was Wiggins, Kyrie, and Bennett. Right, and they right, also drafted right, right. Tristan Thompson, and they traded Wiggins for Love after they got LeBron back. But it's just the dumb luck that he had. <laughs> to get those number one picks, and he's not a good owner. I mean, he lucked into LeBron the first time. Didn't win anything. He didn't build a good team around him. And it's just, I think that's where, like, the draft can be, uh, it might not reward the best process, you know? Well, uh, I don't know. I, I think there's also, Trust like, some... Trust the process. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Lonzo Ball, I'm praying for you to torch Joel Embiid when you guys see the court, <laughs> if you're listening. Anyways, I think that there's a subtext here. I, I'm pretty sure a lot of teams strategize tanking. Like, I know Mark Cuban recently said that he admitted to the Mavericks tanking. I think it was the last at the end of last season, and that kind of puts you in a position to to increase your chances in the lottery. I know it's it's not it's not a guaranteed way to get a high pick, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people are thinking about it from the business perspective. I don't know, dude. I, I can't think of a, a recent example where a team like there's one team that just had a terrible season and they got like a terrible like they got they got the shaft on in the draft. I mean, maybe New York. Yeah, yeah. The Knicks haven't gone. So going back, the Knicks, when they do have number one or first-round picks, yeah, they haven't gotten like a number one pick since, I think, uh, Ewing in the wow. 80s. But like the issue they've had recently, and hopefully not an issue going forward, is that they traded a lot of their first-round picks for aged former stars that never panned out. I remember the worst trade was Andre Bargnani. I think they gave up two first-round picks for him. <laughs> and he never even, I mean, he wasn't even good to begin with. And then what was so disappointing about this year with the Knicks, going back to Phil, last summer... When they drafted Porzingis, they actually made sound moves. They signed Aaron Oflala for cheap. They signed Robin Lopez for cheap, or right. relatively cheap. Right. You know, they signed a lot of decent players, and they had Melo and Porzingis. And it wasn't a great season by any measure. I mean, they didn't make the playoffs, but it seemed like they were something there. And then this past offseason, they signed Joaquim Noah, Joaquim Noah, who hadn't 
to an $18 million per year deal for four years. Uh-huh. And he hasn't been healthy in like two, three years, really. Yeah, that's true. And Derrick Rose, too. Yeah, they trade for Derrick Rose, who, I mean, to be fair, he's, his contract is up, and hopefully they don't resign him. Or if they do it before, much cheaper deal. Right. But they gave up valuable assets. They gave up Bob Lopez. They gave up their rookie pick, Jaron Grant. He was the 19th pick of the same draft that they took Porzingis. And they gave up assets for him, the guys that they could have traded, you know, in other deals or gotten other assets through that. And they just gave up these two players for a point guard that hadn't really shown anything since, like, his MVP season. But, you know, unfortunately, he got injured. And now, the obviously, the culture has gone down with what happened with Oakley at the Garden. Yeah, um, that was bad. Phil completely trying to marginalize and get rid of Carmelo, trying to basically convince him to accept. Because what happened with the contract that they negotiated with Carmelo is Carmelo was able to get a no-trade clause, meaning that if they tried to trade him, he'd have to waive yeah. that no-trade clause. <clears throat> so let's say he, they try to trade him to Oklahoma City. He doesn't want to go there. Uh-huh. He could just say, no, I don't want to go. I'm not going to waive the clause. And then they can't trade him. And I think the only other person that had that, I think, at that time was Kobe. Yeah, and Dirk. And Dirk, yeah. So I don't know why he negotiated that in the first place. There was no leverage on Mel's part to get that clause because he got the max contract at like $119 million. And then, so Phil's tactic to get him to waive it was to basically say, you should leave. You don't want you here. And then yeah, that, that pissed, off, pissed off Porzingis because Porzingis is tight with Melo. And then now you have this superstar athlete. He's not really a superstar, but he's a super prospect, 21 years old. He's on the rookie contract. He's really cheap still. He will, he will be cheap for the next three years. I mean, if he makes like an all-NBA team, that's definitely going to increase his value because he's still on his rookie contract, like you said. But I think, I mean, with Carmelo Anthony, a lot of people criticize his game because basketball is all about sharing. You know, sharing is caring, and they always call him the quote-unquote ball stopper because when it comes to him, he just pulls an iso play and, and, and goes off on his own. But frankly, if you ask me, if I was in Carmelo's shoes, I think I would have done the same thing, right? You're signing a max contract deal. You're from New York. And so he, I think a lot of it was based on the impression. Like he wanted to be the face of the franchise and, and lead the team to the playoffs and, and rebuild, help Phil rebuild. But somewhere there was a disconnect, either Dolan or, or Phil or, or both of them colluded and be like, and we're like, you know what? Let's just try to get rid of this guy because well, he's too expensive. Dolan, so Dolan, what's interesting is Dolan's kind of just, he's paying Phil now $12 million a year. I mean, it's not surprising that Phil's picked up that option this year to do it for another two years, extend it basically for another two years for the same yearly rate. But Dolan doesn't want to, he's basically using Phil Jackson as like a body, a shield for any like sort of criticism. Because he basically just says, ask Phil whenever someone asks him something about oh, the really? team. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so it's pretty much all Phil's show. The ironies before when Dolan interfered, it was usually for the worst. Like he would give up more assets than trade or something. And now he's just gone the other way. We were talking earlier about front office culture, and it's just the complete opposite of what you want. And there's so much disconnect. It's been like this for a long time. Yeah, dude. And, I mean, I'm a Lakers fan, so with Phil Jackson, I know that this is a player's league. They kind of define the the persona of a team. All NBA coaches are not really coaches, but they're just people. They're good managers. They know how to be people persons. And Phil Jackson is a really good – he knows how to manage personalities really well. And I think that is more of his forte than GM. GM, you have to know how to scout players and measure statistics. And I don't think Phil, like, I think he just kind of, like, telecommutes. Like, doesn't actually, he's not active in going out and scouting players, is he? No, he's, he, I recently saw a video of him walking up to the podium. And he, he had, like, two hip replacement surgeries. He's not really able to move around very much. And you can't really blame him for 
you know, that kind of contract offer. I mean, it's a pretty good deal on his part to get that kind of money. But then you question whether he's really in it, like who's making the decisions. I guess we should wind things down. I hope you gained something from our conversation here on the business behind basketball. Thank you for listening. Don't forget, you can find us on postmoneyplan.com or subscribe to the Post Money Plan channel in iTunes podcast app or on Google Play. I'm your co-host, Stephen Egao. And I'm Abel Sied. And thank you very much for listening. The Post Money Plan. Dropping knowledge. Because without it, you ain't fresh.